Hi, welcome to Read All About It. I'm Marshall Moore. And I'm Yuri Vitacci. And as usual, we're here with two good books and one classic. Which we'll be talking about after we review some more recent books. My book today is The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. And this is such a remarkable little book. And when I say little, I mean physically. It's a very tiny little object. I would probably swallow it if I held it too close to my face and, like, inhaled incorrectly. Um, one of the things that's really notable about the book is how short it is. And the length of it, it's only 163 pages, was one of the things people were really talking about when it came out because it's this tiny little book and had so much packed into it. Um, Julian Barnes is a British author. Um, this is just as an example of an author who's really at the top of his game. Uh, basically, what it's about is it's complicated. There's this man named Tony, and he's is he's he's writing this or telling the story as it were later in life. He's in his seventies and he's reflecting on what his life was like. And so there's two parts to this book. Originally, it starts out in his youth. He's at school and he's got a circle of friends and there's this one boy named Adrian who's very bright. Um, and he's almost like this superhuman kind of guy in the sense that he's charismatic, he's intelligent, everybody looks up to him. Thematically, in some ways, this reminds you a bit of some of the, like, Kajuo Ishiguro, some of the sort of British boarding school stuff that we've talked about. But then it takes a much darker turn because uh, one of the students in their class commits suicide and these kids are arrogant, too. Tony and Adrian and their other friends, they're not always very nice. And so things just sort of get darker. And then part two of the book is set when he's 70, and he's trying to figure out some things that happened. Um, Adrian actually also commits suicide. And then there's this chain of events that takes place. I don't want to say too much about exactly what happens, but there's a very dark secret, almost a mystery lurking under all of this that finally is revealed at the end. Um, so it's a fascinating book. It's really short, but it's just overflowing with ideas. It's a, it's a psychological – It's well, thriller is probably the wrong word, but it's a, it's a tense psychological suspense book then, is it? I wouldn't even go so far as to call it suspense. I mean, I know one, one thing we tend to talk about is genre and how do we – frame these books that we're talking about, but literary fiction, but it's psychologically intense. And one of the things that's so interesting about it is that it it's intense in such a gentle way. Um, Barnes is just an amazing writer. He has so much clarity and so much insight. And at the same time, Tony is not the most likable character. And I think it's one of the things that Barnes has a real gift for is that he sells it. You know, he makes this not very sympathetic, not very reliable character compelling enough that you care. Mm -hmm. And then underneath all of this, there's this kind of mystery thing going on. And it really leaves you wondering and you want to know what on earth is going on and how has this been going on all these years? Mm -hmm. He's very much a sort of Booker Prize type person, isn't it? I imagine that every time one of his books comes out, uh, you know, before looking at it, all the Booker Prize judges say, "Look, another another Barnes is out. Let's uh, let's check it out." Um, is it uh, is is it okay for the average reader? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, and myself, I want to read more of his work. This is the first one of his books I've read. Um, friends had been recommending it. And I'm not one of those readers who goes out to read the Booker Prize list or the National Book Award list or, you know, pick a country, name the list. But this just this seemed interesting to me when I read about it, you know, the recommendations of these particular friends. I trust their judgment. So just a fantastic book and really makes me want to read more by him. The, uh, the smallness of it may worry some readers. I, I don't know if it's just me, but when I'm uh, buying a, a, a book, you know, I want at least half a kilo. Uh, I, I want several hundred pages for my bang for my buck. Uh, is, is that a problem? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I also sort of want to be able to substitute my book for a dumbbell and like do do curls with it to work on my biceps. But um, of course, if I had biceps, it would be more useful. I mean, no, I think that it's really satisfying. I mean, I think I read most of the book on a train, um, possibly on a single journey. But at the same time, it's the sort of thing where, yeah, you want to invest in a big hefty book and it makes it feel like, you know, you've gotten some bang for your buck. But on the other hand, when a book is as good as this, and honestly, just the density of the ideas and the observations in it, um, you know, the thought that it provokes, it's the, if you look at it in terms of value, the value is there. That's interesting. I remember when we started the Asia Literary Review, we paid all the contributors the same fee, whether they did an 8,000-word short story or a six-line poem. The idea then that you put more thought into a poem than you do in an 8,000-word uh, uh, long story. So uh, so, so um, would you say this was a, a novella to escape? Uh, through is it? Uh, it must be about fifty, sixty thousand words only. I think, if that. Um, mm. Even calling it a novella is interesting because I think just going by the length, yeah, you could label it that. Um, I still feel like there's so much in it that I just call it a novel, even though it's a very short one. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that people will be debating in the pages of Publishers Weekly for centuries to come, unless the world ends. Let's talk a bit about the characters. Uh, you mentioned this character, Tony, the main character. You said he's unsympathetic. Uh, how, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it, there are a couple of layers to it because this book is all about the layers. Um, when we meet Tony and his friends in school in the first half of the book, they're entitled, they're obnoxious, and they're kind of in love with how intelligent they are. And then along comes this Adrian guy. He's like the new boy in school and he insinuates himself into the group. And they're just, it's this sort of mutual admiration society. They're all each other's biggest fans and to the expense of everybody else. Um, and at one other point that's worth mentioning here is that when they're so young, you know, when they're kids in school, Tony starts dating this girl named Veronica. And then later, you know, they break up, whatever. And then in adulthood, it emerges that Adrian has been going out with her. Um, the problem is that Tony doesn't respond very well to that. He sends Adrian a nasty letter. And not too long after this, uh, this is when Adrian kills himself. And so part of the lingering question that you know, hangs over the whole book is what was Tony's role in Adrian's death? Uh, and did he even really have one? And so part of what makes him such an obnoxious guy is the question of, like, does he feel guilt? Or at some level, is he almost 
and it's horrible to say this, but is he almost kind of proud of having that kind of effect on somebody else's life, even though they'd fallen out? And there's still quite a lot more going on, but Tony's thought processes, he's this man who like wants to kind of slide through life without really leaving much of a ripple. But yet once you understand his psychology a little bit better, he's not a nice guy. Hmm. The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes is a, is a, is a, is a short book, as you mentioned earlier. Um, to, one of the things I, I find is that short books don't stay in your mind that long because you haven't spent much time with them, whereas your long book, you actually spend two weeks with the author, with the characters. But isn't it a case of how it stays in your mind? Because I, I know what you mean. This book, when I read it, there's this sort of evanescence to it in like if you've gone to an art gallery and you've looked at a bunch of impressionist paintings you it, they cast a certain mood you feel a certain way about them but at the same time when you leave the gallery you don't really remember the details because like if you've been looking at monet's the details are kind of blurry the closer you look but the mood lingers and to me that's how the book stays with me it doesn't have a big wallop and it in the sense of like the David Mitchell book we talked about or Casual Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go a couple of weeks ago. But at the same time, it stays, but it stays in an impressionist kind of way. So to recap, I've been talking about The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. And basically the reason I brought it today is because it's not a vampire novel. There aren't ghosts in it. People do die. It's not supernatural, but it's a really good book. A little bit different from my normal thing, but you should read it. My book today is The Grey Man by Mark Greeney. Uh, and I guess both, both books are, today are filled with unlikable characters. Although the grey man in this story is a likable character, but everybody else is a complete monster. Um, the Grey Man is the, the new hot thriller series and uh, the author Mark Greeney burst upon the scene and quickly became the, the king of thriller writers. So uh, it's very different from, uh, from your choice, but uh, it's, a, it's a story worth reading. And let me just uh, tell you what it's about. The Grey Man is the world's greatest hitman. And he's called the Grey Man because you don't see him, you don't notice him. He blends into the background. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody can find him. And uh, he assassinates people as... All good hitman do. But, of course, uh, the uh, author wants us to like this particular hitman. So he has one rule in life, which is that he only assassinates people who deserve it. So evil dictators who torture their people, yes, uh, he'll accept that contract. Political leader who someone doesn't like, no, he won't assassinate somebody for political reasons. He's got to be an actual bad guy. So we've got this hero character who's, uh, who's an assassin, he's exciting, uh, and yet he's got this heart of gold. Now, you might think, OK, this is pretty corny stuff. And uh, the quick answer to that obvious question is, yes, it is. Uh, it's a, it's a very much the standard thriller format of, um, of your uh, hero character battling evil in the world. But uh, I would still give it five stars. In fact, I think I did give it five stars uh, when I reviewed it um, because... It's one of those things where you get exactly what you're you're expecting. Uh, so like a James Bond book or a Spider-Man comic or a Pixar cartoon. You expect something. You don't expect high literature. You expect something and they deliver that something uh, perfectly. The story of the Grey Man is uh, is a, it's great fun. Uh, the, the 
the assassin uh, called Grey Man is has just finished a very long and complex job, and he's about to uh, to take a bit of a break. But what he doesn't know is that the last person he assassinated has put out a massive contract on his head, and there's so much money involved that uh, all the other hitmen around the world have assembled teams to bring him down to win this massive uh, pot of money. So you've got all these characters around the world looking for the Grey Man. The Grey Man's secret is that no one can find him because he's got no friends, no family, no connections, uh, no single home. So there's nothing uh, that people can pin him down with. The only thing he has is his handler, which is uh, an old British gentleman in London who uh, who handles him. The Grey Man is American. Um, and the the plot is that um, he's he's uh, finished a big job. He's about to sort of take a break when the bad guys get hold of his handler, the one person he trusts. So we've got all these teams around the world converging on him, and his handler uh, sends him into the jaws of death, basically. Now, all this happens in the first chapter or two. So, so much tension there you're on the edge of your seat by the end of chapter two and then the tension just gets ratcheted up and up and up and up that's such such an intense beginning to a novel how can the writer possibly top that without it becoming completely absurd uh, that's right. That's a that's a reasonable question. And the way he does it is by throwing in everything. You know, there's a bit of Mission Impossible in there. You know, how does he get out of this locked room that the bad guys have put him in? There's a bit of Jason Bourne in there. There's a bit of Tom Clancy in there. So um, the best bits from all the great thriller writers are all weaved into this story as our hero ducks and weaves and uses his brain and uses his brawn to, to get out of these, uh, these uh, tricky situations. I think one of the fun things about this book is how primal it is. Do you remember when you were a small boy, you know, you've got your your action man or G.I. Joe or whatever, and, you know, a rock falls on him, but he gets up and keeps going. A car falls on him, but he gets up and keeps going. You know, we all play these little games of of the heroic figures that can be uh, unstoppable. And this is basically that same little boy emotion. Um, You know, a mountain falls on him. But he gets up, dusts himself off, and he keeps going. This really sounds like a Tom Clancy novel. Well, I'm glad you said that, because, in fact, it is a Tom Clancy novel. Um, it's a funny story. That actually, the, the story of the author is almost as interesting as the story of his character. So Mark Greeny, who was a waiter, can you believe it, for 10 years, uh, eventually wrote this classic, The, the Grey Man, this new generation thriller, and he was then discovered by the publishing industry and invited to become Tom Clancy. In fact, if you go into a bookshop now, you'll still see the thriller shelves full of Tom Clancy in huge letters. And that's actually this same guy, Mark Greeny, actually writes all the Tom Clancy books. And, um, you know, am I, am I uh, letting out a secret? Well, kind of, except it's not really a secret because Tom Clancy is dead. He died in uh, 2013. But his books still come out every year like clockwork. So, in fact, um, I, I don't think the, the publishers are hiding the fact. Uh, originally, it said Tom Clancy with Mark Greeny. Um, now it says Tom Clancy, then the title of the book, and then Mark Greeny in tiny letters. He doesn't seem to mind. Um, I'm sure the paychecks don't suck. I'm sure the paychecks do help with that. But he's also continuing the Grey Man series. So uh, Grey Man came out in 2009, and now I believe there are 
four, maybe five uh, volumes in the series. And at the same time, he's writing all Tom Clancy's books uh, for him. So there are five or six uh, Tom Clancy books as well. So this guy has got the t- two of the biggest brand names in thriller writing. One guy. It's so unfair. I hate this guy. I think we all do. <laughs> So is he doing something like John D. McDonald did with the Travis McGee books back in like the 70s and 80s where he's using like the, the, the books I'm talking about, each one had a color in the title. Is he doing anything like that or like with uh, um, Sue Grafton? Oh, yes, that's right. The, the color is not used in the same way. The, the other books in the series don't mention that color. The color is just a reference to the, to the guy's uh, invisibility. But, it, you know, it, uh, there is something deep there because um, we all need, uh, humanity needs this hero figure. We need one person who uh, is always fighting evil. It's a very deep, primal thing. I guess, you know, 50,000 years ago, um, someone must have told a story like this, and it's deep in our DNA now. Um, so although in some ways it's not... It's not original to have a, a good-hearted uh, man with a gun going around the world killing bad guys. Uh, that's, in one way, the elder story in the book. The fact that it can be done well is very smart because there's that deep primal need for it. So every generation has its James Bond. Every generation has its you know, Jason Bourne. And so for the new millennium, uh, the Grey Man seems to be it. And the film rights have just been bought, so it's going to be a big movie. You anticipated my next question. I was about to ask, so when's the film coming out? The film, I think, has been bought by the same team who did Jack Reacher um, and I, I think maybe even Mission Impossible. So it's that same sort of genre. Uh, there's a deep need for us to have guns and go around uh, being shot at. Which brings up another point for me, though. I'm I'm American, so we have blood flowing in the streets from all the guns. So do we really need guns? Is this something that we really actually need as a species? You know, I was uh, raised by a by a single mom, and so she had no guns in the house. And uh, of course, we got we you know three boys. We got sticks and made them into guns and turned them into swords and turned them into weapons. I think there's some ancient tool making. Uh, thing within us that requires us to have extensions of ourselves to commit violence with. I think it's very natural. I, I do tend to agree with that because I think it's one reason horror is, is, is as popular as it is as a genre as well because it's a catharsis and an outlet and it gives us something that perhaps we don't need to actually experience in real life. And that's a type of power. And we've been talking about The Grey Man by Mark Greeny. So now it's time to talk about the classic that we brought this week, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And there we also have a villain. We have good and evil fighting each other, don't we? Uh, Great Expectations is the story of a, of a young boy called Pip and his journey through life, really. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deep... Um, it's, a, it's a book full of emotion. I mean, he, he's in love with this girl and it never really comes off. Um, he's he goes through poverty. He he makes a lot of bad decisions. It's actually a, a rather mature book for a, for a Victorian writer. It's an interesting book because it's so complex. And I came rather late to Great Expectations. I have a confession to make. I was really reluctant to read Dickens for a long time because he's one of those writers that, at least in the states, you get foisted upon you in high school. 
probably before you're really old enough to read him and appreciate what he's doing. And so my impression of him when I was much younger was like, oh, my God, this man is so boring. Why is this a classic? Why would anybody want to read this? And then coming back to Dickens as an adult has been amazing because he's such a powerful writer with such great observations. And there's a, a lot of really emotion and heart there for the characters. He really did uh, carve out a new niche for himself. And also he started so many things that uh, we now find are just natural parts of literature. So uh, he really was very influential. And, of course, the names of his characters are so so great, aren't they? Full of, full of little meanings and, and things. Um, in Greater Expectations, we have uh, Miss Havisham, have and sham so uh, so ownership is a sham and she lives in a house called satis which means uh, satis is latin for enough so all these little hidden messages actually in the the names of the characters uh, the main character is called pip which sounds like a little bit of nothing doesn't it but then that's how he's treated because at the beginning of his book he's living with his abusive older sister and he's married to this really nice gentle guy who just sort of takes him under his wing and protects him and shelters him from the worst of the treatment. Um, and the whole book is like that. And there's a sort of recurring sense of grace that runs through it, where even when Pip is doing really stupid stuff, and even when he's suffering the bad consequences, there's still a sort of redemption, if you will. He screws up, he gets in trouble, he gets into debt. Um, he makes terrible decisions, like you said, but then there's something, it always seems to come around. Yes, he's, he was a, Charles Dickens was very much a believer, I think, in, in fate. I think he was a Unitarian and uh, a strong belief that what you do, you know, you reap what you sow. So if you're a good man, you know, however bad it looks, that, you know, the good person eventually will, 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 uh, will get the just uh, rewards. Um, but uh, going back to, to, to names, of course, we have Magwitch. Magwitch is, is a convict that uh, Pip meets as a child and who does, then disappears from the story uh, only to reappear later. Magwitch, again, we've got this very hard-sounding name. You know, you've got the word witch in there as if it's magical and monstrous and mag, so it's a great witch. I mean, Dickens is worth reading just for the names of the characters, I think. I think so. And he, he teaches us a lot as well about plotting because even if you look at him from a technical point, and you can look at a book that's as ginormous and sprawling as Great Expectations or, like, by comparison, A Christmas Carol, which is so much shorter, but it sort of deals with some of the same themes about, like, redemption and uh, home is best. Um, he, he kind of takes you on a – no, I don't want to exactly say a similar journey, but you end up in a similar place. Yeah. But he teaches us a lot about how to make a plot work, basically. Yes. There's actually a story behind the fact that he had he used such such strange names. And there was a there was a lawsuit where a, a writer was sued successfully because the name of the character he, he wrote about in a novel was owned by a real person. So from that day onwards, Victorian authors had to use names that didn't apply to real characters. That's why none of uh, Dickens characters are called, you know, John and Mary, they're all called Decimus Barnacle, which is a real character in a Dickens story. Um, and so he was, he was forced to do this. Um, 
uh, one of my favorites is Tudor Stilt Stalking. You can see Dickens sitting there thinking, okay, I've got to have a name that couldn't possibly be attached to a to a real human being. So the, the, the teacher with the cane is Wackford Squeers. It's all a, really a matter of, uh, of making it uh, unlikely, but at the same time putting a little message in there. We have a, a Mr. Myrtle, and those uh, who can read French know what Myrd means in French. Uh, it sounds like murder, but it also means something else. Yeah, there is a lot of real irony and cleverness in Dickens's characters' names. And, you know, J.K. Rowling actually does the same thing. If you've read the books or seen the movies, she has a similar gift for naming characters just exactly right, especially the ones in the magical world. Definitely true, definitely true. Um, we have a preacher in Dickens called the Reverend Melchizedek Howler. And immediately you get this image of this chanting man in the pulpit, sort of screaming at his uh, uh, at his congregation. Um, I think it all started with uh, um, Dickens' own family. Um, his his brother was called Moses, but had a blocked nose and pronounced himself Boses. So Dickens' first book was about was uh, he called himself Boz out of uh, copying his brother. And so from then on, we always had these wonderful characters with very strange names. And I think the, the lawsuit then um, then made it uh, uh, important that he, he, he had names that no human being could possibly have. Well, I think one other thing related to that, actually, is the fact that um, Dickens had to be especially careful financially with these choices because he published so much of the work himself in his own magazine in serial form. I know Great Expectations appeared in that magazine uh, all the year round is the title of the magazine. He was a co-owner of it. And um, I know also that like the magazine was kind of slumping because one uh, novel that they were publishing wasn't really well received. And so part of the reason Great Expectations came to exist was to bail the magazine out. Possibly, I don't know if the timing lines up like after that lawsuit or whatever, but they were in some financial trouble. And he decided to write this novel and crank it out over like the course of a year, basically to revive the magazine's fortunes. We're talking about Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, the story of Philip Pirrip, a poor boy who gets a chance in life and uh, goes through his life with an awful lot of very interesting adventures and some unusual Victorian coincidences. And one more thing I'd like to point out is if you've been putting off reading Dickens like I did for so long, he's worth it. I really suggest you read this. And that's all we have time for this week. We've been talking about The Grey Man by Mark Greeney, The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes, and Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Join us next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.